one of the reasons why I connect so deeply with with Colombia, specifically like even within Latin America, is given my like identities and things like that, right? Like I understand what it's like to be judged from the outside and like people making these preconceived notions about who you are and what you're like without actually really getting to know you. And I think Colombia kind of suffers a little bit of that problem, right? Because if you hear what people have to say or if you watch narcos or different things like that, like all people know about Colombia is it's this really dangerous place and a bunch of drugs and things like that. And like living here like day to day, it's not true. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Dan Abraham. Dan is a management consultant turned company builder. After majoring in cognitive sciences at Rice University, Dan went on to work as an associate with Oliver Weinman. During his tenure there, Dan took a secondment where he was shipped off to Colombia to work in the impact investing space, and he got hooked. He lives there today working as chief of staff for Polymath Ventures, an investment firm that creates new businesses across Latin America from scratch to scale. We talked about how Dan's multifaceted identity as a Christian Malayali son of divorced parents that moved around a lot living mostly in small towns led to his decision to study at Rice after turning down a full ride scholarship at NYU Stern and how it affected his ability to relate with people when he first moved back to New Jersey and was surrounded by brown people in the seventh grade. He shared a bit about his work at Polymath Ventures, how its investment model is tailored for Colombia and why the country is so ripe for investment. Lastly, I got some fun anecdotes from him about not having internet during the 2016 election, getting approached by a Colombian Bangra team, and adventuring into some of the lesser explored spots in Colombia. No Aperna, not the Salt Flats. Let's get started. Dan Abraham, welcome to Brown People We Know. So Dan, that apartment that you're in, is that the same one that was on your blog? Nah, nah. My, before I was living in an Airbnb, and now I finally am lucky enough to have my own apartment here in Colombia. Actually, it's pretty funny. It used to be a, a, a hotel before, and because of the pandemic and they're not being tourists anymore, they they converted it into a bunch of condos. So when you look at it, it's kind of weird because it looks like a hotel. And so all my friends always ask me, like, dude, isn't it weird being here, like living in a hotel? I'm like, nah, man, I've been a consultant for so long. Living in a hotel just feels right at home. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, we both share this experience of, of moving around a lot. And I think it's surprisingly uncommon, even among immigrants, because usually they've moved once or twice, like the children of immigrants, they've moved once or twice. But I know for me, I probably moved at least five or six or maybe seven times just before seventh grade. And then I kind of settled down around seventh grade as well. But I'm curious why you moved around so much and, and where you lived. Yeah, so I lived a bunch of places. Uh, so I was born in New York City. <laughs> Lived there for for two weeks, actually. So my dad was finishing up his residency there in, in the Bronx. So I was born in the hospital where my dad was doing his residency. But then after he was done, we moved. So we moved to New Jersey, then moved to Tennessee, Texas. Then I moved to Maryland, Florida. And then I moved back to New Jersey in, in seventh grade. So I think, yeah, up until that point, I had just kind of been a nomad moving around a ton. A lot of it was because of my dad's job. He worked for the the military, but like as a doctor. And so he would get like transferred uh, a ton. Yeah. So the last episode, we actually had like a quote unquote military brat as well. Her family was in India. So for me, it was also jobs, but it wasn't military. It was just like my parents trying to try to keep, you know, stable jobs as immigrants. So it's kind of funny to hear that. So when you moved to New Jersey in seventh grade, I know that that was kind of like the first time that you were really surrounded by brown people what was that experience like for you yeah no it was a really weird experience because i think 
up until that point, like even if you hear like the places that I live, like Texas or Florida, I mean, some of those places like Dallas, Houston, there's like a ton of Indian people. So it's like, oh yeah, this guy's like used to being around brown people. That was like not the case for me. Like we were always living in these like really super small towns. And so for me in those towns, I was always like one of the like odd kids out, like, like I didn't look like anyone else. And so when I was moving to New Jersey, I was like really, really excited that like, ah, yes, finally, I'm going to be around a bunch of people that like look like me that I can relate to. And it's going to be great. And that like ended up not being the case at all, because sure, I'm like South Asian and all that stuff. But my name's still like Dan. My parents are like divorced, like I'm Christian. So there's just like things about my identity that are very different, I think, from the typical South Asian experience. And so I think there were things that I could relate with them, but I couldn't fully relate with them. And that was something I I was not expecting uh, moving back to, to New Jersey. Did you find that you changed the way that you behaved, either trying to fit in or to kind of separate yourself? Something that was interesting for me is when I lived in an area where there were a lot of brown people around me. So when I lived in Dallas, I had mostly Indian friends. But when I moved to Wisconsin, I didn't really have that option, you know. So my friend group was all Chinese, which was like a similar immigrant group. I'm wondering if you had anything like that that you noticed in retrospect that you were doing. So to some extent, I mean, everyone like when they're in their like adolescent years, like wants to fit in and tries to do different ways to like fit in with a specific group or like change their interests or likes or talk a certain way. And I think to some extent I did that. But I think if you look at sort of the the external markers of my identity, right? Like I look Indian, but like my name is like Dan. So there's just like certain things that you, you just can't change about yourself. So from that extent, I always constantly felt like I had to explain or prove either like, yeah, I like belong in this community, right? Like ignore the fact that like my name is Dan, but like look at look at who I am, right? Or do things like that. So I think I think at some point I just kind of gave up and, and embraced it. Cause it's like, after, after some point, it's like, there's only so much you can do to change, especially like the external markers of my, uh, of my identity. And so I think at that point I became that much more interested in like that second level of like, what are the things that like make me who I am as a person beyond just like the obvious external physical name, whatever. And I think that's kind of really where I've chosen to, to kind of identify who I am as a person. So when you moved to New Jersey, did you find that you had a pretty diverse set of friends or did you still gravitate towards like white friends because that's what you were used to? Or did you gravitate towards brown friends because, you know, it's just maybe the the default groups setting? I think I tried to break out of the, the brown friend group to like have a diverse set of friends. I think that ended up being quite hard. One, because... My school was quite South Asian, so it was like 40% South Asian or something like that. Like to give you an idea of like how crazy that was, my uh, graduating class was like 750 in high school. Of that, there were 30 Patels. So like at graduation, like literally like my school changed the way that we did graduation because people got bored of like hearing a bunch of names. So we would start like front of the alphabet, back of the alphabet just to give people a break between all the Patels. And I remember like, as soon as like Patel ended and it was like Pavlova or something like that, like the crowd went wild. It's like, yes, <laughs> finally, like switching it up. So, so I think anyways, like coming from that kind of background already. And then on top of that, my school was like very diverse actually. So you had people from everywhere, not just South Asians, but then it was very segregated. So like the types of classes that I took, like honors and AP and like my interests, I just naturally ended up being with like classes that were like 80, 85% like brown. And so it, it just made it that much harder to, to, to be with a, a diverse group. But then the funny thing is, is that there's so many brown people that there was like sub clicks in my school. So like, if you think about like mean girls or something like that, they show like, like the nerdy Asians and like the popular Asians, like it was something like that for brown people where it was like, there's like, the smart, like nerdy Indians, there's like the smart, cool Indians, there's like the cool, dumb Indians, like there's just like all the different permutations just having so many like people. So like from that extent, I think in terms of like 
racial or things like that of like the ethnic background of my friends. They're all brown. But I think there were so many clicks that, yes, I, I still sat at the intersection of like a lot of those clicks and it was more of like a floater and moved around from friend group as opposed to like staying in like one specific group. I hope I would have made the cool, dumb Indians. That just sounds like a cool. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I found that I, I really floated. I felt like I, I floated between groups in high school and all of that, too. Now I have more of like a, a strong friend group that I relate to, but I can definitely relate to that. So you mentioned your Christian identity as well. So I'm curious if you if you are pretty religious and how that dynamic played out because i think a lot of south asians don't realize that there are christian south asians and then you mentioned your name which is kind of connected to that faith as well right so was your church identity and your south asian identity did you see them as two different things did you see them as interrelated yeah so i think in my case they're kind of two different things i think for most people that are from my like background or community they're probably very much related so I'm from Kerala, so my family is Malu. And like sort of in our history, like genealogy and stuff like that, if you look at like how early Christianity came to my part of India, it was like probably 2000 years ago. So well, actually one of the disciples from Jesus, his name is Thomas, came to, to, to India and like converted people in my region. And so there's like been different waves of like how Christianity has come to India. Obviously with like the British Empire and things like that, there's been more recent Parts, but like my part of India has always been fairly diverse between Muslims and, and Christians and Hindus. And also it was like a trade port. So they traded a lot with the Arab world. So I think it's not that weird if being from my part of India that there are a lot of Christians. I think for me, though, what makes my experience probably different from the typical like Malu in America is that I didn't live or grow up in like one of those big cities, right? So I didn't live in like a Houston or a Dallas or a Chicago where you have like enough of this community where you have the different Malu churches. And like for those people, like the church is like a huge part of the community because it's like you relate on so many different levels. For me, like I I was never in like those kinds of cities. So I'd always grown up in like white churches or like multi like ethnic, multi-denominational churches. And then I think so for me, it's always been like a very different experience and something that like I can't I actually can't even relate with like people from my own like Malu background because my church, my church history has been so different. So like I feel like very much South Asian, but I feel like South Asian and like all my friends, like even in New Jersey, like there weren't a lot of Malu people. So I feel like weirdly broadly connected with like the broader Indian, like South Asian culture and like to give you an example. There's all these meme pages, like subtle curry traits and like all that kind of stuff where like you can show me something and I'll instantly get it and can laugh about it. But like you show me anything from like the subtle Malu traits, like, and it's not like a language barrier, but it's like whatever like references they make to movies or like very specific things about the church. I'm like, bro, I have no idea what you're talking about. So it's like this really weird thing where like I'm Christian, but I'm Christian with non-brown people, but then I'm brown, but with people that aren't Christian. But I, I don't have that overlap that I think that other 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 Malu people do, which I think makes my experience kind of different as well. It makes it unique, which I think going back to what you said earlier about why you've chosen maybe to focus more on your markers and as an individual as opposed to some of these more community markers that people tend towards, that makes a lot of sense. So we've had a single mother on the show in the past, and she was a single mother of two two daughters. And you mentioned also that your parents were divorced. And I know that you were raised primarily by your mother. So one of the questions I have is just when we think about Indian communities in general, community is a value, right? Like every child is kind of raised by the village. But on the other hand, you have this Lokya Kenge type dynamic. I'm wondering how your experience was as a, a child of a single mother, as a child of divorced parents kind of going through that experience, both just in general, but then if you feel like you're being South Asian had an impact on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So my parents got divorced when I was like six, six or seven. So this is now like 20, 21 years ago, something crazy like that. And so for, for me, I think, you know, like a lot of people talk about 
divorce is like this like really big thing and it changed who I am or like it really affected me and like whatever. I think for me that actually wasn't the case. And I think it's because it happened when I was so young that like I spent the vast majority of my life with my parents divorced as opposed to the other way around. That for me, it just feels like very normal. And then I think two is I have like two really phenomenal parents that both are like wanted to be actively involved in my life and were like committed to making, you know, the situation as normal as possible. So I never really felt this thing of like, I didn't have a normal childhood and, and that kind of thing. No, I felt like, sure, my parents are, are, are divorced, but that's just like, it doesn't define me, right? It's just, it's just the experience that I live. But I feel like I, I have a really strong relationship with both parents. My mom in particular went out of her way to like, make sure that like, I never felt like left out or things like that. But then at the same time, even though for me, I feel like it was very normal, I think I probably, a lot of that's just because my mom shielded me so much, like naturally being like a, a woman from like the South Asian community. And especially like if divorce is uncommon right now, think about like 20 years ago, like I'm sure my mom was like probably one of the the few. And so I think I, I can only imagine like how difficult that must have been for her. Luckily, I think it wasn't too bad because up until New Jersey, like we were again, not living with very strong south asian communities like within the towns that we were living in so i think in some ways that was actually really positive for my mom because i think like otherwise i think there's like i think it'd be really tough to be you know like a divorced woman like in in the brown community especially so many years ago when they're when she was probably one of the only ones if not the only one you've talked about how different aspects of your identity have helped you relate to different people in different ways, right? Like the non-Brown church group, the South Asian groups. With having divorced parents, it seems like even your experience there may have been somewhat unique, at least compared to what we typically see in media and like the stereotypical experience of people shifting between homes, like children shifting between homes constantly and that kind of thing. Do you feel like you're able to relate to people on that level as well? Or is that another place where you feel like you have the label, but the experience might just be different. Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I think for me, like I said, I think by any traditional external marker, I'm just so weird, right? Like I'm a brown dude with a white name that speaks Spanish and has divorced parent and all that. So the thing is, like, I think people have always had a really hard time putting me into like a specific box. And like for myself, like I said, like, as much as I tried to like change who I am, there's like so, there's only so much you can do that naturally I've just kind of had to embrace that intersection. And I think on top of that, having to move around so much and always being that new kid, like you just naturally at some point get really good at meeting new people, connecting with people, finding those commonalities. And I think, yeah, I, at this point, there's just, I, my identity sits at the intersection of so many things, like even like between extrovert and introvert and like all these different like aspects i feel like right now it's like a really interesting time specifically probably in america where like i feel like everything's getting increasingly polarized whether racially whether politically so on and so forth and i've found that like just throughout my life and this just becomes even more true now i'm always somehow finding myself in the middle and like kind of trying to being pulled on both directions when i'm just kind of like there's only so much you can pull me in one way because I'm still part of my identities with the other side. And so I think I've just kind of learned to embrace kind of sitting at the middle and having this, this sort of cross intersectional experience. And I think what that's really enabled me to do is, is not only understand both sides, but also kind of bring people together. And I think that's kind of fueled part of my passions, both like in terms of like activities and things I do, but also like long-term like career goals, which I'm sure we'll probably get into. So actually, we can talk about that now because I just want to give the audience a quick overview. You graduated Rice University with a degree in cognitive sciences and economics. You spent about three years consulting in Chicago, where we actually lived at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, I was in Logan no Square at the time. Yeah. Okay, I was in Lakeview. And then you moved to Columbia, the country, not the city in South Carolina. So you had to like actually get on a plane and fly over. Yeah. Or for my case, everyone thought it was the university. So they're like, oh, congratulations on your MBA or master's. Like, nah, brah, I'm <laughs> going to a country to live there. Yeah. Way cooler. Maybe less prestigious, but way cooler. 
<laughs> and then so you shifted over to work in social impact. But I'm just going to start like first off, what is a degree in cognitive sciences? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, the story of how like I ended up at, at Rice in college is is kind of funny as well. And I think that's probably another way of just embracing who I was being this like non-traditional, like I'm not going to follow the path that people think that I should take. So for me, like in high school, I got very involved in this club that was called FBLA. It's like Future Business Leaders of America. In retrospect, I'm just kind of like, why did I, why did I think it was like so cool to do something like that? Even though I actually really loved the, the experience and had like still have really, really good friends from it. So anyways, from that experience, I think being so actively involved in that organization, I realized that I wanted to do business as like a longer term career. And so when it came time to decide between colleges, I ended up applying to like a lot of business schools more than anything else. And then when once I got my acceptances, I was actually between a couple and like one of the big things where I felt like I was getting a lot of pressure from like both my friends and like the broader high school community was I actually had like a full scholarship to NYU Stern, which is a phenomenal business program. And like for someone that wanted to do business and I loved NYU and all that kind of stuff, it was like very much the clear choice, like I should do that. But there was something that just didn't like sit right with me, like when I was trying to make the decision of like, it feels like. I don't need to study business to go into business. And I feel like as someone that's already has like all these unique interests and in, in different things like that, like I actually really want to use my four years in undergrad to take this sort of liberal arts approach and like see what I actually like and care about and how I can channel like all these different interests and, and things of my background into to something of meaning for me. And so I think that was like a really huge decision for me. And I felt like I actually got like a lot of flack for it because Stern was like one of the top schools where like everyone in my high school, like if you're not going to an IV, like you want to go to like a school like that. And like people are like paying like full money to go there. It's like, bro, you want to do business. You got a full ride there. Like, why aren't you going there? And for me, it was, it's this thing that like, I tried to understand it, but like no one just, or explain it, but no one just understood why I like felt like I needed to do this. And I feel like Part of what what I really liked about Rice, there's kind of two reasons. One is like their tagline is this like unconventional like wisdom or something like that. So it's just like, yes, you embrace like this weirdness. I met the people there, like everyone's like super weird, quirky and different. And like everyone has these like really interesting things about them. I was like, yes, this is me. The other like really funny thing about Rice is so as like a high schooler, I was always just like super dramatic person that had these like idealistic like whatever things and so one of the things that I always thought was when you like step on campus like you know it's the one and and to make this even worse I had like a very specific analogy that I explained to people which was if you've ever seen the movie The Princess Diaries I'm gonna hate myself for saying this but uh there's like that main character uh Mia who was like Anne Hathaway who was basically this like outcast in high school discovers that she's a princess and like so part of her like coming coming of age stories like she's like building up this experience of getting kissed for the first time and like and when she kisses the right person it's going to like her foot's going to pop and so like i felt visiting the schools like it's like falling in love like you have this like rush of emotions and like you know it's the one and so the funny thing was when i like stepped onto like stern and like some of the other schools campuses i like didn't have that at all and so college decisions, like you have to make the decision May 1st. I was just like freaking out. I was like, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what I want to do. I like discarded rice earlier because it's like, I don't want to go to Texas. It's like so far away. But then like, I was like having this like quarter life, not even quarter life at that point, whatever life, like crisis. Like, I don't know what I want to do. Mom, can we just please go to rice? I don't, I like feel like I just need to like go and see it. And the funny thing is I got there. And I like my foot like metaphorically popped and I was just like, yes, I love this. I love the campus. I like the people that I met. Uh, and it just kind of felt felt right at home. So so anyways, that's kind of how I ended up at Rice, which I felt like was like a very kind of dramatic, unnecessarily dramatic experience. But then like while I was there, more seriously, one of the reasons why I really liked Rice was was because it, they didn't force you to commit to a major or to a specific school. 
And so what I really did for my like first two years was just take a bunch of classes and then see, see what I, what, what I fall into. And I really, really liked some of the classes that I took in psych and neuroscience and philosophy. And I was just like, ah, I wish there was a way to combine these all together. And it turns out there was, which is cognitive science. So cognitive science is basically understanding like how the mind works when it comes to like these higher order things. So things like language or like learning language things like learning in general like making decisions like intelligence so all these kinds of things the way the human mind works is really really difficult and so i really liked cognitive science because i think it inherently like connected with my identity right of like always having to sit at the intersection and seeing things from different points of view like this was the first time where it kind of like really proved out that having multiple points of view on something actually creates like this much richer understanding of things. Dan, it's so striking to me that you had all those insights. I feel like I've noticed this about a couple guests on the show thus far, but you know, that's an age, especially when you're picking rice and people are pushing you to go to Stern. That's an age where within our community, stereotypically, at least we're being pushed towards medicine or engineering. We're being pushed towards the stable path. What gave you the insight to think about it a little bit differently and kind of, you know, reject the notion of a business degree or reject the idea that you should step into a a major immediately when you reach college? Yeah, so I think one is just kind of having really supportive parents. They're traditional in the sense like, yeah, like you need to eventually like find your way, right? And like whatever you do, you need to do well and like you need to like get grades, good grades and all this kind of stuff. But I don't feel like they were very much like, you absolutely need to do medicine or you absolutely need to do this and that. So I think I've always been much more like intrinsically like motivated and driven. So honestly, even if my parents were hard on me, I don't think they could have ever been as hard on me as I was on myself. Or like if they tried to push me in something, but like I was interested in something else, I don't, I honestly don't think it would have worked. But like, luckily I feel like my parents were like very supportive And I think my parents were also like very much like non-traditional already breaking the mold, right? Like having like as a role model, my mom that very much followed this path that is not the norm or my dad or whatever. So, so, so for me, I felt like, yeah, I don't really have a good sense of where this could take me. Cause again, there wasn't like really a role model for me at the time of like, yeah, you can just do all these kinds of things and straight from the path and things will work out for you. But I just kind of had this like deep underlying confidence in myself that like that things are going to work out. I'll figure it out. And like my parents are there to like back me up and support me that like the worst possible thing is I, I do something and it doesn't work for a year or two and I can do something else. Or I I really pursue something like so cognitive science, like, for instance, was was something that's I'm really intellectually like interested and passionate about. But I wasn't totally convinced it would get me a job. And so I just double majored and added on econ as sort of like this kind of safety kind of assurance thing. So I, I always felt like there was kind of a way to like mitigate the risk. And, and that's kind of how I did it. So after college, you took eight months to volunteer in the Dominican Republic and you backpacked through South America and India. What inspired those destinations? And do you have any particularly memorable moments, good or bad? So I had landed a job at the consulting firm. They had given me the choice of three options. The latest like start date I could do was January the following year. And I was like, yes, take it. I like need a break. Like rice for me was like a very challenging, like academically experience. And like, even in my like senior year, because I like took so long to decide on my majors. And I also had studied abroad for a semester. I was very behind and my majors had nothing to do with each other. So even in my like final semester, I was like at 20 hours or something like that. So I was just like, I know consulting is going to be such a grind. I have already like busted my butt up until this point. Like I just kind of like want to break and I want to use this time to do kind of whatever. So yeah, I had these like seven, eight months to fill. I knew that I wanted to do volunteering for part of it. And through my church there were these missionaries or it was like really common for like our church to send like mission groups to the Dominican Republic. So I got connected with them, did that for a couple months. And then the thing is I had this like whole extra chunk of time. So like that ended in like September, 
The original plan was, I think I might want to do business school one day, so I'm going to take the GMAT. And so most of my friends aren't in business, right? So because I didn't go to business school, I came from like a very brown high school. So everyone did medicine, even at Rice, everyone does medicine. So I thought studying for the GMAT was like studying like for the MCAT. Like I'm going to have to lock myself in a room for five months, study like a ton of hours. And then after like a month or two, I was just like, not even two, yeah, like four or five weeks. I was like, I think I'm good. And I took the test and I was like, yeah, I'm fine. So then I was like, okay, now what do I do with this extra like three, four months? And so I was like, ah, I have this signing bonus from like my company. Might as well like take advantage of it because can't spend it once I start working. And so I said I was going to use that time to travel. The hard thing though was like by this point, it was already like September, October. Most of my friends were already either working or in their own like med school grad school, whatever. So I didn't really have anyone to go with. And my parents were like, if you want to travel, that's fine, but you are not going on your own. And so basically after like a lot of arguing with them, we came to this compromise that I am going to these exotic, more off the beat, off the beaten path type places, but I will go with the tour group so they feel better. So I found this like interesting tour group. It's called Gecko Adventures or something like that. And basically it's like meant for like, backpackers that don't want to backpack alone so essentially it was the boat that i'm in like i don't want to spend a ton of money on this but i also can't go alone and so yeah it was really cool i was with a bunch of australians and and new zealanders more than anything else and i think that was like a really interesting kind of time more than anything what i remember about it that this was around the time of the 2016 election so i was with them october november december and like I don't know if you've ever met Australians before, but they're like savage. So they're like, there's like, they don't have the kind of filter that Americans have. Like they don't care at all about politically correctness. And like, they will like roast the crap out of you. And so being an American at that time during all this election with like all the Trump and, and whatever going on was, was kind of crazy because they would not stop making fun of me. And then the really like funny thing As part of the tour, we went to like five or six countries in Latin America. So we went in South America. So I went to Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil. And then I was in Colombia, but like very briefly. And so at the time of the elections, I was actually in Bolivia. And there's this place called like the Salt Flats. It's like really beautiful. But basically there's like no internet access or, or any of that. And so I was actually there for like, two or three days, like while the, like the actual election night was happening. And so I didn't know the results of the election until like three or four days after the fact, when I crossed the border into Chile. And I think it was, what was really funny was like crossing the border. We were on this bus and there was like a group of like Brits like next to me. And they were talking about like, they were asking us, so like, how do you feel about finding out, finally finding out about the election results and all this kind of stuff? It was like, do you think that they voted for Trump? And I was just like, I basically said something along the lines of like, nah, like just because y'all were stupid enough to do Brexit doesn't mean Americans are stupid enough to vote for Trump. And then I found myself eating my words like 10 seconds later, like as we like got to the border and like once I had Wi-Fi. And then all of a sudden I just got bombarded by like all the like social media from like Snapchat and Facebook and all these things of like, all of a sudden people are like screaming things at like people of color to like go back to your own country. And it was just like, what the heck is happening? But it was like this really weird thing of just like not being in the US when it happened and also being like in a foreign country where everyone sees your passport and all of a sudden it's like, oh, so you're an American. And just like, yeah, but don't hold it against me <laughs> kind of thing. So, so, so yeah, I think that was like really interesting. But yeah, I didn't get back to the U.S. until December or January or something like that. So I think by the time I had gotten back, things had, had calmed down. But yeah, it was really weird to not be in the States for that election. And then this election as well, not being in the States when it happened. So you mentioned that you you always knew that you had wanted to do business You have a blog called The Gringo Diaries, where you've documented bits of your journey, supplemented with some pretty dope memes. In one of them, you say that you entered the firm with a wish list of things that you wanted to do while you were in consulting. 
what was it that you were hoping to get out of consulting? And when you started, did you think that this would be a career path that you stayed on forever? So part of the reason why I went into consulting was, as you can already tell from my background, like doing a bunch of stuff, even in college, studying two like unrelated ma majors, it was like, dude, what the heck am I going to do for like an actual career? And so consulting was really attractive in the sense that I was going to get to try a bunch of different industries, expose myself to new fields, work on different problems, get, getting to travel a bunch. And so that's kind of like what I set out to do is I want to go into consulting. I want to work across a bunch of different industries and get exposure to figure out what I want to do. I also want to like get involved in like social impact efforts and do like a pro bono project. I want to do like recruiting and things like that. I want to travel the world. I also ended up like through that, like did like a nonprofit fellowship, like sabbatical or externship. That's actually how I came to Columbia. And I also transferred offices. So I moved from Houston to Chicago at some point. So, so I actually think like through that experience, like I got to do like a ton of things and like pretty much everything on my checklist I had checked off. I think the one thing that ended up not being true was that I was going to figure out what I wanted to do from consulting. And I've talked to so many people in consulting ever since, and they, they, they would probably agree with me is consulting is really good at helping you figure out what you don't want to do, but it doesn't actually show you what you do want to do unless you just, the stars align and you land up on this project in this like perfect industry with the perfect client, with the perfect, which just, it doesn't happen. And so basically like two, two and a half years into my time at the firm, I was kind of getting to the point where it's like, all right. I feel like I've gotten a lot of, of the experiences that I want to get out of consulting, most of the skills that I want, but I still don't have a dang clue like what I want to do after. And so that's kind of why I decided to go on like an externship or sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. And so I worked with an organization called Acumen and basically they are like an impact investing firm. And so, so they kind of are like pioneers in the space and saw like there's a way to combine the free markets and capitalism and channel it into, into good for the community. And so, yeah, I, I did that ended up only coming here and I was only supposed to be here for six months. And I get think through that experience, like a lot of things happened or, or I made like a lot of realizations and, and that's what's led me to, to, to stay here. Yeah. And so that's the nonprofit fellowship that you were referring to, right? Yeah. During that time, were you thinking about leaving consulting? Like, did you take that fellowship intentionally because you're like, hey, it might be time for me to head out? Or is was it like just one more thing to try? And then, you you know, during the experience, you decided this is something I want to double down on. Definitely took it with the intention of leaving consulting to what I was saying earlier. Like, I know consulting is not for me, but I don't know what I want to do instead. But I'm also so burned out and don't have the time to like interview and like do the research to figure it out that this is like a really good way for me to kind of have some more time, like work more like normal hours and just have like a bit of a break. And through that time, I'll kind of be able to to figure things out. So while I was here, I was doing like lots of interviews and, and things like that. But to be clear, like not at all in Colombia, like I had zero expectation that I was going to stay in Colombia. I thought I was just going to be here for a couple of months and just kind of enjoy my time and have this kind of like weird, unique experience and then go back to the States. So tell me a bit more about Polymath Ventures, which is the company that you're at now. I, I guess, A, I'm just curious what they do, but B, I saw that your title changed from investment analyst to chief of staff, which seems like a big change in responsibilities. So can you just speak to that a bit? Yeah, so Polymath is what you call a venture studio. It's a relatively new type of business model, I guess, within this kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem. They're like a company builder. So you can think of it as like a startup factory. And what they do is they kind of in vertically integrate the entire thing. So we're not just the incubator. We're also the accelerator. We're also the VC firm that like provides capital. So we do kind of everything. And the reason why we have that kind of model is just because the, the, uh, the ecosystem here is so nascent. And it's like so hard to start your own company. There's not like a lot of role models that you really need that kind of full support to really start this kind of, to start startups and, and create this sort of robust environment here within Latin America. And so I started originally on the, the investment team. 
I was basically more on like the VC side of things of like, how do we do like follow up investments? Like, should we invest in this new company that we're, that we're thinking about building? How much should we invest? That kind of stuff. But then after like three, four months, the CEO actually tapped me for, for a different role, which is this chief of staff role. And basically what I'm doing there is doing a lot more of like leading the cross like organizational like org transformation efforts. So basically we're like at this point in our organization now where we started this new division called Polymath Plus. Instead of before where we were building all these companies internally for ourselves, because of the pandemic, we've tried to find ways of like, how do we stay afloat and how do we keep startups alive and, and this kind of stuff in this like even more challenging environment than before. And so one of the things that we we decided to do is is start working with corporations in the region because they are flush with capital and things like that. And they're looking to get into the startup game, but don't know how to do it. So why not partner together? And so through that, we saw that there's a lot of opportunities there, but like organ- internally as an organization, we just weren't ready to, to, to do that. Like to be able to run like multiple projects at the same time. We don't have like an HR system. We never had like an onboarding program. We never had trainings. And so that's kind of what I was... Uh, was was brought in to help out with is like how do we like put in the structure across all these different processes and tools and stuff so that our organization can actually kind of grow and scale so dan if you're comfortable talking about it i'm curious if you took a pay cut when you switched out of consulting and if you feel like it was worth it because i think so many of us are encouraged towards high paying stable careers but i know for myself when i shifted from healthcare to the nonprofit sector i took a five digit pay cut, but I just felt way happier afterwards. And so, yeah, just curious about your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So in my case, yes, I took a, a, a pay cut and I actually took a, a big pay cut. And I think the, the thing that I meant, didn't mention before about my backstory is that with Polymath, I had actually gotten the offer while I was here in, in Colombia with Acumen back in 2019. But then because of the way that the externship was set up with my firm, I actually had to go back for a period of time to the U.S. And so I went from Colombia back to the U.S. And then during that time, I was figuring out, do I actually want to take this polymath offer? Yes or no? I think there's a couple of reasons why I decided to ultimately make the jump. But what ended up happening was it took me a long time to make the decision. But by March, I like decided, hey, yeah, I actually want to join you guys let's do it. In like March, 2020, I guess you can imagine where this is going. Like as soon as I made the decision, I put in my two weeks with my firm and told them, Hey, I'm going to go back to Colombia." And then the pandemic hit, the country went in lockdown, like in different investors pulled out and different things like that. So they actually asked to push back my start date. And so they asked me this the day before my last day at the consulting firm. So that was even more like I had to call HR and being like, Hey, just kidding. Like, can I actually stick around? But I might actually be going back to Colombia at some other point in a couple of months, like really to be determined, like who knows? And like, to my surprise, they said yes. And the part of the reason was because like the clients actually really liked me on the project that I was on and to like continue the project, they wanted to keep me around. So I got really lucky, but yeah, so I had to quit my job, not once, but twice to, to come to to come, come to Columbia. So I ultimately quit again in like August or September last year. And at that point, everyone was like, are you sure? Like HR was like, is it for real this time? Like if you quit, we're not going to take you back again. I was like, yes, guys, like it is real this time. So that was like a really scary thing for me for a couple of reasons. One is the job had already been pulled for me once because of this unexpected pandemic. Two is like, I'm going back to like a developing country in the middle of the pandemic. And then three, it's like, I had these experiences and had like a really life-changing time while I was in Colombia the first time, but all the friends that I'd known there, like were also back in the US at this point. So like to some extent, I was also starting from scratch and like, yeah, I had interviewed with these guys, but I'd only met them in the interview like one time, like nine months ago or whatever it was, right? So do I actually really want to do this? Part of me, like that was like a really hard thing for me to decide. I think there's a couple of reasons why I decided to make the jump and why I think it it ultimately made it worth it. I think one was, you know, my time in Colombia when I was there with, with acting through the fellowship was really transformative. And I felt like it allowed me to be like a, a better version of myself. And I felt like 
it just felt good being in Colombia. I think part of it was like, I was really able to connect with the culture because I think the culture has like a lot of similarities actually with South Asian culture that allowed me to establish myself. I think two is, and so this comes back from my cognitive science background as well as, is this idea of does your personality change when you speak a different language, right? And so I, I would argue that it, it might not necessarily like change, but, but speaking different languages allows you to expose different sides of yourself, right? So, so I think like if anyone speaks more than one language, you'll like understand this like feeling of like, there's this word that doesn't quite translate to the other language. And so you'll like go around it or say this like kind of weird way to do it, but you don't feel satisfied. It's like, that's not truly what I was trying to say, right? And so in that extent, language really constrains who you are in your way to like expose yourself. And so what I found with Spanish was that it was like a new avenue or a new channel to like express parts of my personality to people that I couldn't do with either English or, or with Malayalam. And so for me, that was like really, really important to me because I felt like I was able to be almost more of myself by speaking Spanish than I could have just only speaking English in the US. And then I think too is like all this other stuff of like the opportunity of of getting to work like in entrepreneurship, doing these like really unique things. And also Colombia is like in a really unique point in time where you've probably heard of all the drug cartel and stuff like that. But on top of that, they were in like a 50 year civil war that ended in 2016. So now it's like a time where the country is like really rebuilding itself. So I felt like not only can I be like a good version of myself, but like from a business opportunity standpoint, and like also just like a broader cultural, like country building, like being here right now, I'd get to do things that might ultimately like impact the future direction of the company or of the country in a way that I would not get to experience in any way had I waited for another time. It's so cool to hear about all the different things that you were weighing, because I think often the career discussions just come down to one thing and it's just that salary number. But it seems like you're thinking about how you feel as a person in different places about the general environment in terms of things like language and also just like legacy in terms of being able to impact something larger. So can you speak more about just life in Colombia? Like I know you had visited a couple of times and went back and forth, but was it kind of what you expected when you came back or is there something that caught you off guard when you came back to Colombia? Yeah. So the thing that caught me most off guard, and I think this is also the broader American population's views towards the pandemic versus here in Colombia is back last year, the U S had all the ventilators and different things like that, that like they were never fully in danger of like the whole system like collapsing in, in the way that like if we had like a fraction of those numbers here in Colombia, we just didn't have any sort of ventilators or things like that to, to really be able to sustain the population. So Colombia took the a hard edge, which is we're going to be super strict on the lockdowns and things to prevent things in the first place so that things don't get crazy. So when I had come in October, things were just opening up. But but they, there were all these like pandemic like restrictions put into place. So so for instance, like obviously mask wearing is like universal and you have to wear it indoors, outdoors or you will get fined. The second thing is um, yeah, to go into like a grocery store or, or things like that. The way that the system works here right now is that if your driver's license ends in an odd number, you can only go into the grocery store shopping on even numbers. I don't know why they didn't do odd, odd, even, even. But basically, you can only go grocery sh store shopping like every other day. They, they'll always take your temperature when you go in. They have to record like your 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 movements and stuff. So for me, it felt like very much like I'm all of a sudden in this like weird 1984 environment with all these kinds of laws and restrictions. And like a lot of my friends had already left and the friends that were still here, like I couldn't really see them as easily. So I think that was like a really huge adjustment. And then on top of that, like once things got really bad in like December, January here, we went into like full on lockdown for like weeks at a time where like not only like could you not leave the house, but we also had dry law. So you like couldn't order alcohol or like things like, I don't know. So it was just like being here was like really crazy because literally right before it, I was with my dad in Florida. And so like Florida is like the wild west of the US. So going from that to this was 
literally insane. And then I had reverse culture shock when I went back this past April uh, to get the vaccine. Whereas like, okay, life in the US is like back to normal. But then here things are still like super crazy. So I think I, it's given more meaning, I guess, to the work that I'm doing. Because I feel like really I see entrepreneurship and all this as a way to like help economic development and like push us more towards like the first world kind of countries and like actually living in and out each day, the differences of like being here in the pandemic versus having lived in Florida during the pandemic makes what I do, at least to me, it gives, it gives that much more meaning and importance to like why, you know, economic development here is super important. So you've spent over a year in Colombia now and you're working with Colombian people. I assume your neighbors are Colombian. So you have a lot of that interaction. When do you feel the most at home in Colombia and when do you feel the most like a stranger there? Do you feel like you fit in with the country? Yeah. So what I really like about both Colombia and then I'll talk about my experience in general. So Colombia is also quite like ethnically diverse, which is something that I didn't realize before coming here. And especially like even relative to other Latin American countries, you have people that are primarily European, you have like African, you have indigenous, like you have different groups. So I think one is even within the country, there's kind of this kind of multi-ethnic society and like different people from different regions have different accents and different customs and stuff like, so it's almost kind of like India, honestly, in that sense. I think for me, what's been really helpful is that I don't think that like in my day-to-day life, I'm just one or the other of like spending time with just Colombians or just Americans. So to give you an example, Polymath, where I work, it's actually founded by like a Chinese American and CEO, and she doesn't actually speak Spanish despite living here for seven years. And so I think that makes a really interesting work environment because you have this mix of like foreigners with Colombians. And I think that makes all discussions really interesting because it's always a mix of English and Spanish makes the Spanglish. Same thing in like my outside of my friends at work. I have a lot of friends from the church here, which is only English speaking church in Bogota. So then you have a lot of expats there, but then you have a lot of Colombians that speak English or want to learn English that go there too. And then like I have these different language exchange things and learning salsa dancing. So so with all these things, I feel like my community always feels quite quite diverse where I'm not just with Colombians or just with the other, but it's always a, a international community. And also like being with expats here, they're also quite interesting, right? Because they because we have we, this shared experience of like, you see us like one way and people will judge us a certain way or try and put us into a box. But when you actually get to know that second level that I think is more true to our identity, we're more similar than we are different. And so I think being able to find more of those people like concentrated in one place has weirdly actually made me feel like I fit in more in Colombia than I did back in the States in some ways. Yeah, you have like an in-group that you can be a part of. Yeah. So given that you're so entrenched in this international community, do you feel like you've been fully exposed to the way of life of, let's say, like the average Colombian that grew up there? I think, I think yes and no. I think it's really hard in the sense that both with my work and before working with the, the NGO, I've seen sort of more of the like lower income, like bottom of the pyramid type experiences here. But then in my day-to-day life, I live in like one of the nicer parts of Bogota and like the privilege that comes with that. So to give you an example, I talked about all this stuff with the pandemic and like how that affects like Colombia as a country. I think the, the flip side of that is mostly the people that live here are all like people that are either rich enough or like have visas that they can fly to the US and get vaccinated. So that it was like not a problem for them. So like, I feel like I see kind of the two sides of Colombia at the same time. That was really weird. I think I got a little bit more exposed to like the hard realities of everyday life with a couple of months ago, there was, was a protest. It started like end of April and it went for like a month, month and a half. And it was a pretty violent protest, actually. I think it was like across the country, probably like 60, 70 people ended up dying. And there's like a lot of these reports of like police brutality and the UN human rights came investigated and all this kind of stuff. And for me, that was like a really interesting experience because that was more where you saw the two sides of Colombia, because like here in this neighborhood, it's like quite quiet. 
But if I go like five, 10 blocks where it's a little bit more like working class or lower middle class kinds of communities, you saw the difference of all this graffiti everywhere and constant protest and taking to the streets. And I think that's really helped put things in perspective for me. When people interact with you, do they tend to see you as Indian or as American? They tend to see me, I'd say, as... I actually don't even know, to be honest. It's probably depends on who. I think if people don't know what an Indian person looks like, then it's probably like, he's probably some kind of Hispanic person, but his accent's a little funny. Oh, are you like American? Are you gringo? Like, yeah. Ah, okay, cool. But then like, there's some people that's like, ah, oh, you look Indian. Are you Indian? It's like, yeah. So then no matter what I say about living in the US, all they hear is the Indian and asking me things about Indian. It's like, yeah, I can answer some of these questions, but not all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> Tell me about the Bangra team. Oh my God. That was literally the most ridiculous. So I was, th- this was the first time I was here back in 20, 2019. I was just like riding public transportation. I guess to their credit at that point, that was before mass. So you could actually see full people. And like this random woman just like comes up to me on the bus and was like, are you Indian? And I was just like, I think I know where this is going, but yeah, sure. I'll play along. Yeah, I am. And then she totally caught me off guard and was like, hey, we have this like, I'm part of this Bangra team here in here here in Bogota. Would you like to join? And I was just like, sure. <laughs> I'll check it out. So so I went for one class. I think what was really sad about that was was that uh so I'd never like Bhangra before. Like I've done like Bollywood dancing and stuff like that, but never really done Bhangra. And so I got to class and everyone's like, oh, is are you the instructor? Or like they were expecting me to be really good. And like these people like had been Bhangra dancing for like years and like they were putting me like next to them and it was like I could barely keep up and I, I felt like everyone was like looking at me like shaking their head like this poor guy like like can't can't even keep up and I was just like oh my god I I didn't ask to be part of this but yeah wait were they mostly Colombians in that yeah class yeah all the Colombians showed wow. me up <laughs> in Bhangra it was so embarrassing oh my gosh if it's any consolation, I probably would have been worse. But having lived there for a while now, been in Colombia again for like over a year, what is the weirdest thing about America to you? Do you just look back at anything that we do here that you just go like, man, that's kind of strange? Yeah, so I think being in Colombia, the the biggest or weirdest thing that I realized about America is like how ethnocentric we are as Americans because it's like, here, like Colombians were like up to date and like knew more about the American elections than I did, but also like knew very much about like the European like going ons and like what's happening in Australia and also the rest of Latin America, and yet have time to like keep up with like all the sports and all that stuff, whether it's the NBA, whether it's the Euro Cup, like whatever. But like in America, it's just like all America all the time. And especially like living in a place like Texas, it's like forget the rest of America, it's just Texas, you know? So I think that was one thing that I that I realized coming here was was just how little I knew about, you know, places outside of the US, even despite having traveled so much. They like know far more about us than than we know about them. It's funny you say that because we've had on a couple Canadian Americans and they've said pretty much the exact same thing. Did you find a way to kind of catch up and learn? Like what what did you adjust once you realized that? Yeah, so I feel like the best way to, especially if you're in like another country, the best way to like learn about the country and the culture is by connecting with the local people, right? So, so getting to meet people, having like real conversations with them, taking part in like salsa classes and things that even sound like super fun. It's like such a core part of their identity and like the things that they like to do that that it's really important to to get involved. And I think other than that, just yeah, being being open, right? Letting them talk, like not dominating conversations, not imposing your views, trying to like read up on things, watching TV, like local local shows is also a really good way or movies if you like. For people visiting Colombia, I'm sure we can all hit up Google and find like the tourist spots, but I know that you've traveled around quite a bit. You've seen different cities outside of Bogota. What are one or two places that you would recommend people go see that are a bit off the beaten path? Absolutely. So I'd say 
this first off is one of the reasons why I connect so deeply with with Colombia, specifically like even within Latin America, is given my like identities and things like that, right? Like I understand what it's like to be judged from the outside and like people making these preconceived notions about who you are and what you're like without actually really getting to know you. And I think Colombia kind of suffers a little bit of that problem, right? Because if you hear what people have to say or if you watch narcos or different things like that, like all people know about Colombia is it's this really dangerous place and a bunch of drugs and things like that. And like living here like day to day, it's not true, right? And I think that's like one of the really, really big reasons why I like Colombia so much is I find that connection. I think Colombia is really fascinating as a country because it's a small country, but it's actually the second most biodiverse in the world. So like from Bogota, I can go an hour in each direction and see something differently. So I can see rainforest, I can see savanna, I can see desert, I can even see glaciers. You can see like everything here, which is which has been really, really cool. I think in terms of places off the beaten path that I really, really enjoyed, I think one is El Choco. So it's like on the Pacific coast of Colombia. And and actually, it's like a place that most Colombians haven't even been to because that used to be where like a lot of the the armed rebel groups uh, used to be. So in Colombians' minds, it's still like a very dangerous like place. There's nothing to see and do there. But it's like so interesting because one, that's where you see like this really rich Afro-Colombian population and their cultures and the food is different and the music and dance is different. But it's also gorgeous. You see like lush rainforest with like really dark sand and like there's a lot of humpback whales so you can like see whale watching like really up close that was one really really cool place another really really cool off the beaten pace is called uh canyon cristales and it's similar so so that's like in an area where it used to be controlled by by the FARC, so like the armed rebel forces back in the day and that's really only opened up in the last like five years but there there's this river of seven colors so there's like plants underneath that like have these like i don't really know science (laughs) so i don't know what it is that makes them colorful but like you see like all these beautiful colors of like red and orange and yellow and green and so when you take pictures from it you see this river of like seven colors and it's like so unlike anything i've ever seen anywhere else in the world so dan i i'm i know we're coming up on time but it seems like you're a very impact-driven person. So what is the Dan Abraham legacy? What are you hoping to leave behind? I wish I had like a very full, like, this is exactly what I want to do. This is the, the, the legacy and impact that I want to leave. And honestly, I felt like throughout my life, like I've, I've known people, right? Like one of my best friends from high school, like seventh grade, she was like, I want to be a pharmacist and I want to work at this place and I want to do this and that. And like, she did all those things to her credit. And I'm just like, to some extent, I've always been so jealous of like people like that, that like literally have this like clear vision. I think for me, it's probably been more about enjoying the journey and enjoying the ride than like having any clear goal. But I think for me, one of the big things is, is I feel like I've been given a ton of opportunities, right? And experiences. And I don't think it's necessarily because of my innate talents or abilities or anything like that. I think just especially being here in Colombia right now, but having the privilege of being brought up and, and, and born in the U.S. and having good schooling and all that stuff, I think it's just unlocked a lot of doors for me that I otherwise wouldn't get. And I think seeing that stark difference with people here, especially Colombia is far less of like an upwardly mobile society the way that the U.S. is. It's just finding a way to like, I guess, sort of dismantle some of these like institutions that like, just lock out so much of, of, of everyday people, right? And like finding ways to do that. And I always thought, you know, when I joined consulting, it was like this either or kind of thing. So I have to do be successful at business and do something like consulting and then kind of do the social impact stuff on the side as like a hustle. And like, I think Acumen, one of the biggest things that it did for me was helping me realize that that it's not necessarily like an either or kind of thing. There's like a way to combine the two, right? And so here specifically, like things like entrepreneurship and business are are things that I typically wouldn't have associated with like social impact. But honestly, like here in Latin America, basically the reason why like what I'm doing is so important to me 
is because in Latin America, you have a handful of corporations that provide like formal employment and things like that, but they face no competitive pressure because there's so few of them that like compared to like the US and stuff like that, they're like very behind in innovation. But outside of those jobs, there's like no other like SMEs the way like in the US you have this like backbone economy. And so what ends up happening is like every day, like middle class Latin Americans here, no matter how highly educated you are, you can't move up because you can't get those few jobs because those jobs are going to go to people that have the networks and have the connections. And so there's two paths you can take. You can do one is like, how do you dismantle like these existing behaviors and make it more equitable, which feels like a harder thing. Or two, it's like, how do you create broader opportunities? And so if you can create more of these like small SMEs and create more like middle-class jobs, like that'll really help push like the Latin American economy towards the longer run to catch up with the developing world, right? And I think like India and like all these other countries are much further along in the journey than like Latin America has been so far. And so for me, I think, you know, that realization of like, I can actually do business in a way that's like impactful, like socially was like one of the biggest realizations that I have. And now that I have that, it's like, okay, where in that space do I actually want to sit, right? And do I actually want to stay here long-term or is that something I can do from the US and like find some way to be a bridge between, you know, the US and Latin America or even leverage like the things that are working in India and be that bridge between, you know, Latin America and India. Because I think part of my like identity again is that I don't fit any one external marker. I always sit at this intersection. And so for me right now, it's like, I see a huge opportunity here And it's like sitting at the middle of so many different kinds of privileges and perspectives and points of views. How do we actually bring those things and different people together to like help everyday people, right? So I think that's kind of, if I can even make a crack at that kind of kind of problem, I think I'd be happy with the legacy that I live, I leave. Dan, where can people find you and follow along with the work that you're doing or polymath or any, anything else you want to plug? Yeah, so definitely be sure to check out my my Gringo Diaries blog. I think it's gringodiaries.substack.com. I'm super impressed, Serge, with like your ability to like be so diligent with your podcast because I a blog is not nearly the amount of effort that your podcast takes, but like even still I find it so so difficult to keep up with it. But I think I think that's a, a really good place to 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 follow along. I think the other thing is Check out my company. Uh, it's called Polymath Ventures. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, everything like that. Because I think the model that they're doing is really disruptive and really cool, especially for people interested in entrepreneurship. And it's not only novel just for Latin America, but I think for like the broader, like even in the US, this isn't like that common of a thing. So if you're interested in the entrepreneurship space, definitely check it out. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciated and enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.